There's a point in our lives when we're told it's time to grow up and stop playing games, to move away from the trivial pursuits of childhood and get serious about how we spend our time. But what if that advice is wrong? Terribly wrong. What if games are actually one of the best ways to spend our time and one of our best opportunities to learn about the world and even ourselves? For a little context, consider this. Board games similar to checkers were played by ancient Egyptians as early as 3000 BCE. Go, first played in China in the second millennium BCE, is considered to be the longest continuously played game in the world with over 100 million people playing it today. And of course, chess, a virtual newcomer only dating back about a thousand years, is definitely having a moment with an estimated 650 million players around the world. Given then the longevity and ubiquity of games, surely they deserve to be considered as critical part of culture as music, art, architecture, or literature. And yet most of us still refuse to take them seriously. So why is it that games are so embedded in the human experience and how should we think about them as part of our lives? That's the topic of our discussion today with author Oliver Rader. Oliver is a senior data journalist at the Financial Times who has also written for the Wall Street Journal, 538, and The Economist. Most recently, he's the author of the book, Seven Games. It's about the history and culture of seven of the most popular games in the world today, checkers, chess, go, backgammon, poker, scrabble, and bridge. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to live it better. I'm Bob Baxley. I'm Meredith Black. And I'm Aaron Walter. Thanks for joining us for our conversation with Oliver Rader. My name is Oliver Rader. I'm currently a journalist at the Financial Times, and I am the author of Seven Games, A Human History, which is an exploration of battles between humans and machines over the game board and the role that games play both in human culture and human history and in the development of modern human technology. Cool. That sounds so fun. Um, so, uh, Oliver, we start the show with a series of kind of lightning round questions. You ready to go? Sure. Okay, here we go. Library or coffee shop? Library. By the book or against the rules? By the book. Bobby Fischer or Magnus Carlson? Bobby Fischer. Data or instinct? Data. Man or machine? Man. Strategy or chance? Strategy. Optimist or pessimist? I want to say optimist, but these days, pessimist. Online or over the board? Over the board. Planned or spontaneous? Spontaneous. Shakespeare or Einstein? Einstein. (laughs) And constrained or unbounded? Unbounded. Nice. Oliver, thank you so much for being here. I read your book. I absolutely loved it. But I have to confess something to you. I have never played Go. I've never played backgammon. I've never played chess, bridge, or poker. I feel guilty, to be quite honest. What am I missing out on? I mean, the first thing, thank you, by the way, for having me uh, and for reading the book. The first thing I would say is it's never too late, right? I mean, before I started reporting this book, I also hadn't played much Go, and I hadn't played much backgammon. And now I am a thorough backgammon obsessive. I play at a bar near where I live in Brooklyn every week. I read books about backgammon. I play against my phone constantly. It's never too late to pick up games. I think what one might miss 
I think there's a few things, but one I think is is a connection to sort of your fellow human and a connection through human history. So backgammon in particular is one of the oldest games that we're aware of, certifiably ancient, thousands of years old, found by archaeologists smashing into Egyptian burial tombs. And we play that game largely unchanged today, thousands of years later. And I think games are unique in the sense that they're this strand, nearly unbroken strand that connects us to our ancient ancestors. I mean, just think of how much has changed sort of around us and and these games, these ancient games stay the same. So I find that really, really remarkable. And, you know, I also think each game that you mentioned, backgammon, go, poker, they all have this sort of particular feeling, like games each have their own flavor, like food has its own flavor. And sort of once you start playing, you get exposed to this flavor that doesn't exist anywhere else. I mean, there's nothing like playing poker. It's an experience unto itself. Ditto backgammon, ditto go. And, you know, there are thousands and thousands of great games. I'm not going to force you to play the seven games in the book, but I think each game sort of expresses itself through its rules and through its game board and through the experience of playing it in, in a really unique way. So I'm partisan on this point. I highly recommend you, you give all of them a try, but I think that's what is a little bit of what makes games special. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I was talking to my husband about this last night and he's like, where were you growing up as a child? Like what happened? And I was like, I don't know. I just didn't play them. But after reading, you know, your book, you're right. They all have such a different flavor to them and they all seem so interesting. And I think part of that is also like, there's kind of this sense of community and like community building with other people that I think is really important that I think a lot of people miss and you just kind of called out. Yeah, I think that's right. And as a journalist, I'm interested in covering games, obviously. But I think more than that, what I'm really interested in is covering subcultures. And games just tend to be planets around which very rich subcultures orbit. So games were, is almost an accidental thing. I'm interested in obsessives, basically. I'm, I'm obsessive about obsessives. I'm a meta-obsessive. <laughs> and games are where obsessives often congregate. And I think as a journalist, it's really important to pay attention to obsessives because they're onto something, right? They're obsessed with good reason. And games is a prime example. I mean, I'm going to push on that because that sounds fascinating. Like, Please do. How would, you, how would you describe the subcultures and are there particular ones that you think are uniquely notable? Yeah, I think each game, there's obviously similarities, but there are important differences. I mean, I, I've been an active member of some of these subcultures. So in grad school, for years and years, I was a competitive Scrabble player and I did the Scrabble tournament circuit. More recently, crossword puzzles have competed in crossword puzzle tournaments and constructed puzzles for the New York Times. And, you know, I've never been a great chess player, but I've hung around a lot of great chess players. And I think the thing that's most compelling to me about these game subcultures is they take something that facially is very simple, right? It's just a board with 64 squares or a deck with 52 cards or whatever it is. And they try to get to the bottom of it essentially. They study, they use their computers to analyze their play, to study others' play. They read, 
they play each other endlessly and they take this sort of simple thing and ring with a W as much meaning as they can out of this simple object. And I, I find that to be really fascinating. I mean, crossword puzzles are a great example of this. I mean, it's just a 15 by 15 grid of letters, but every day in the New York Times or other crossword publications, there's something brand new that's never appeared before that thousands, if not millions of people spend their morning solving. And I find that sort of rich expression through simple media to be very, very compelling. And I think games are a really prime example of this phenomenon. I also think it's really interesting that you mentioned with, you know, crossword puzzles and other games is they're also multi-generational, right? Like they go across like so many different generations versus I think what some people think of games as just childhood. Yeah, right. Like many, many generations to the ancient context, but yeah, also like one or two generations to my parents or my grandparents. I think you're exactly right. I think this is, was one of the hooks for me when I started playing games was they're sort of democratizing on the you know age dimension. Like I can play poker with my grandfather and we're doing exactly the same thing, right? As we sit down at the kitchen table. And you know, what other thing does a little kid do that's exactly the same as what the grown-ups are doing, right? It allows you to sort of participate on a relatively level playing field. And yeah, my fondest memories are my grandpa teaching me five-card draw for, you know, nickels and dimes and playing chess with my grandpa. And, you know, my grandpa had a very strict policy, which was never to let kids win, a policy I plan to continue with my own children because I think it's important (laughs) because my single fondest memory of my entire games playing life was when I finally beat my grandpa at chess. And it took years and years and years. But when it happened, it was monumental. This is an interesting line of questioning here, this idea of games being multi-generational and how it connects people. That definitely resonates with me, especially like Thanksgiving after a meal, we'd play pitch, we'd play hearts, spades. And I felt like one of the adults for a brief moment. But you point out in the book that it's not just a multi-generational connection, it's a lineage connection that goes way back in humanity that, you know, there are these ritualistic artifacts that we can discover in archaeology that connect to religion. But games, it's like something else. It's not religious, but it is communal. It is like, you know, there's a history, there's a story to that. What is with the human connection to games? What connects us to them and what do they do for us? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think there's a laundry list of things they do for us. I think the religious part of it is is interesting. I do think they're the object games are of very serious devotion. I think that's the best word for it. I think there's something there. I mean, the obvious example from the book is Marion Tinsley, who is the greatest checkers player who ever lived. And he had two objects of devotion in his life. One was his Christian faith and one was checkers. And he seemed to be devoted to them in equal measure and in very similar ways. And he's you know, not only the greatest checkers player who's ever lived, but maybe the greatest competitor at his chosen pursuit that has ever lived in any domain. I think it's important to us humans to care about things. And I think games just happens to be that thing for a lot of people. But I think games do the obvious things, which is they're fun. They're enjoyable ways to pass time. I think a lot of us experience this 
in 2020 where we had a lot of time to pass and we saw, you know, booms in games of all kinds, chess chief among them. I mean, I think during the early days of the pandemic, more games were probably being played than at any point in human history. But I think, you know, games are also, and I write about this a bit in the book, games are also sort of a form of practice, practice for the quote unquote real world. Like in the sense that games sort of crystallize slices of the real world. So for example, chess, the slice of the real world it crystallizes is maybe planning ahead, right? Strategizing. Or backgammon crystallizes sort of rolling with the punches, right? In backgammon, you have to roll two dice before every turn and sort of come what may, you have to do the best you can with the dice you have. These little sort of parts of our real lives that we can practice in games. And Scrabble, you know, is a lesson in spending and saving, right? You have these tiles, some are good, some are bad. What do I use today? What do I save till tomorrow, i.e. until next turn? And I think coming together with our fellow human, the games are a lubricant, a social lubricant. The most sort of highfalutin answer to this question is that games are an art form. In particular, games are the art form that captures human agency, right? Modes of deciding and acting, you know, whereas painting captures the visual world, games capture the sort of world of action and decision. And, you know, different games sort of express different aspects of that world. And I think, you know, the classic games, the ancient games we've been talking about are akin to, you know, paintings and museums. They're the examples of this art form that, that have survived and that are still appreciated. It's interesting that you say that because I think about, we've been talking about kind of games that have been around for a long time. And I think for Bob, Aaron, and I, we are all designers, software designers by trade, right? And so, you know, I look at video games probably a lot differently than maybe some other people do. I look at video games as like, wow, the art that is involved, like the engineering that is involved, like there's a lot that goes into building video games. So I'm looking at it from like the architectural and kind of the the design point of view. But like a lot of people see video games and they have this bias that there's not necessarily good. Or if you sit down and you play a video game or you're on your Xbox or whatever, it's like, oh, well, this person's just a deadbeat. They came home and they just wanted to play video games. Whereas chess and poker and backgammon don't have that bias. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think if you look at, you know, newspaper articles from like a hundred years ago, you see similar outrage over like crossword puzzles. Crossword puzzles were you know, the bane of society. Being addicted to crossword puzzle solving was compared to alcoholism and it was going to lead to like the downfall of British society, right? I think like novelty is a big part of it. Like now, you know, no one would be that critical, I think, about solving crossword puzzles. I mean, tell me what you think, but I think that's probably changing in the world of video games too, right? I mean, there are universities that offer video game scholarships and for both playing them competitively and for designing them, you know, less than a block away from me, for example, is the NYU Game Center, which is a whole program to design not only video games, but games of all kinds. And I do think they're being more appreciated, or at least I'd like to think so, and I hope so. And, and I think there's this interesting flip side to that question, which is you mentioned chess, 1,500 years old or whatever it is, is itself now becoming an esport. Right, the most popular chess players 
in the world are streamers. They stream themselves playing chess on Twitch and YouTube. And, you know, it doesn't have groundbreaking graphics or anything like that. But like a great game is a great game. And some days the most popular streams on Twitch are chess players. And, you know, a lot of attention has been paid in recent days to the sort of online aspect of chess with, unfortunately, with a cheating scandal. But just like every single outlet is covering chess and it. it's talked about like it is played as it's online and the, the kid accused of cheating is accused of cheating online. So I think more and more the borders, the boundaries between video games and classic game board games are sort of blurred, right? Poker is played online. Everything's played online. And, but I don't know. I'm curious if you think that's changing at all. I mean, for me, I think it's it goes back to this like generational concept, right? Like I think it's going to be hard to get grandma and grandpa on board for like playing a video game online, right? I think as time goes on, it's going to become much more socially acceptable. But like even I feel weird saying, quote unquote, socially acceptable, right? Because it's still just a different version of a game. It's just online. It's not in person. It's hard for me to understand why, you know, parents are like, I don't want my kids playing video games all day. And granted, like there are flavors of games, right? That like some are probably detrimental and some maybe are less so, but like, I don't know. I just still feel like there's this stigma out there about the video game. And I think you're right. I think things are evolving, but I think it's just going to take a really long time and a very larger conversation to get people comfortable with it. I mean, some of the points you talk about, what's interesting about games with the, you know, the connection to human history, the cross-generational aspects of it, like those things just aren't available for video games. Video games are also designed in a way that they exploit people's obsessiveness in a way that board games haven't, it doesn't seem like they were intended to exploit people's obsessiveness, even if it resulted in that. And then video games just aren't that accessible, even for somebody like me who's interested. I didn't grow up with the muscle memory of how to work those controllers. And so even though I've tried to play with the Switch and the Xbox and all that different stuff, I never played those games as a kid. So it's hard for me to figure out the controllers. That said, I went, you know, where my mind really switched on video games was when my son, and he was in high school and he wanted to go to the Dota tournament. And so I went to go see uh, competitive Dota. You know, we, we went three different times to the tournament in Seattle. You know, we sit in a stadium, 15,000 people watching a video game that I don't play. But as I told him, I, I understand it in the same way I understand football, which is enough to be an avid spectator. <laughs> and, and it was phenomenal. It completely transformed how I think about video games and what's happening in the esport world. You know, I'm, I'm sort of curious, Oliver, so you, you came back to these seven games, and I'm sort of curious, like, how you arrived at this particular list and if there were games that didn't make the cut, if there's some attraction to the number seven, so you tried to fill it out, or was there some sort of a bright line that said, oh, these games are in a special bucket I want to write about, and these other games, not as much? Yeah, I, there were criteria, of course, for the selection, but the games, checkers, chess, go, backgammon, poker, scrabble, and bridge. I'm not making the argument that these are the only seven games that are important, certainly not. But I think they were sufficient to sort of tell the story that I wanted to tell. So the reasons for inclusion, there were a few. I mean, one, I wanted them to have sort of active subcultures today and closely related to that to be familiar to most readers, right? And to not have to go through this process of taking half of every chapter to explain what this game is and, and what the rules are. Though I do a little bit of that kind of orientation. 
Two, I wanted them to have received some attention from computer scientists because as sort of roughly speaking, half the story of the book is how technology has influenced the way humans play these games and how technology itself has played them. And in a lot of the chapters, this manifests itself as sort of a human versus machine battle over the game board, if you like. And this story is not maybe as trivial as it sounds on first telling, because this is really the story of the development of modern AI and modern machine learning. I mean, modern machine learning cut its teeth on games. And a lot of seminal computer science was done with games in mind. Checkers and chess in the early days, more recently, poker, Go famously in 2016, and so on. In terms of games that we left out, I mean, there wasn't like an obvious one that's on the cutting room floor, though. My editor at WW Norton and I did have a long conversation about video games, in fact, because, I mean, video games depending on which one you choose, tick a lot of these boxes, right? They certainly have active subcultures. They're certainly familiar to readers. They've certainly received attention from computer scientists. But, you know, I, you have to save some good stuff for the sequel, right? So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, did, we didn't get into that too much. Yeah, I do think there are other games that might have been included, but I do think this seven is a fairly good representation of the kind of interesting things we're talking about. And the final thing I'll say... On that point is that the games in the book are organized in a purposeful way, whereby sort of roughly speaking, as you move through the book, you're adding features. So as you move from, say, Go to Backgammon, you're adding randomness in the form of rolls of dice. As you move from Backgammon to Poker, you're adding hidden information in the form of sort of cards that your opponent can't see. And sort of once you sort of layer all these facets on top of each other, the reader is sort of invited to wonder like, well, what have we arrived at? And eventually we arrive at some form of like real life, right? These are like important things in real life. There's lots of randomness in real life. There's lots of hidden information in real life and so on. The question that falls out of this, indeed one asked by philosophers of games is, is life sort of a version of a game? And indeed that you know, sort of dovetails with the AI because, you know, what do AI researchers really want to do? Well, they want to influence the real world. They want machines that are, you know, truly, and I'm doing scare quotes if you can't see me, that are truly intelligent. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Meredith, I've recently become a really big fan of Athletic Greens and their product AG1. Have you tried it, Meredith? Yeah, I've tried it. And I have to say, I look forward to taking it every day now. Yeah, for me, you know, the idea of having one super research drink that has everything I need, it's got all the vitamins and minerals that I need, prebiotics, probiotic, it's good for gut health, you're keeping your immune system tuned up and just like feeling your best. The idea of that being in one single drink that I can take every day in the morning is very attractive. Yeah, and you know what else I really love is that AG1 is just one scoop that you put in eight ounces of water. It's not like you have to go out and buy a million different supplements and keep taking all of these pills. You've just got everything in one scoop. So it's so nice and convenient. And it's also so much more affordable. And it actually tastes good too. I mean, I enjoy drinking it every morning along with my coffee. And when I travel, you know, they give you these great travel packs so I can just slip it in my duffel bag 
when I'm visiting family, going on vacation. I've got it with me, so I'm always at my best. So if you're curious and want to check out Athletic Greens like Aaron and I and their AG1 formula, there's no better time to do it than now. You'll get a year's supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five travel packs for free. So go to athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering and get your AG1 today. That's athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering. Now back to the show. In the sequence of the book, you also kind of describe the state of AI. And you just said earlier that checkers is now a solved game like tic-tac-toe, whereas bridge is the least solved. And perhaps that's because it's a lack of focus. But there's also something that the games become, it seems to me, more essentially human as you go along. And they require a level of emotional connection and nuance. It feels to me that at some level, it's a little different as you go along those games. I'm curious how you think about AI in the context of the games and why people feel so threatened by AI. You know, obviously, when DeepMind beat Kasparov, was it? Deep Blue, yeah. Sorry, Deep Blue. And when AlphaGo won Go, I mean, that seemed like a big deal. In researching the AI part of this stuff, too, did you get into the kind of why people are so threatened by it and how it changes the players thinking about themselves? It's an interesting question. I remember when I was a little kid, and I was very into chess when I was a little kid, and I remember the cover of Newsweek before Kasparov played Deep Blue in 1997, and it said, Humanity's Last Stand, which, like, on the one hand, is ridiculous, but on the other hand, I sort of love that because, like, the popular press is ascribing so much weight to a board game, which I, as a fan and writer about board games, like really appreciate, like they finally get it. You saw this in 97. You saw this exactly as you said in 2016 with Lee Seedahl, the great Go player. And, you know, Lee Seedahl himself and his fellow Go players went through, I think, what can be fairly described as an existential crisis, right? Like something after they lost to Google's program sort of, you know, really hit them deeply. But, you know, you don't see this in sort of other technological contexts, right? Like I write in the book, like a sprinter doesn't care that like a car can go faster than him or her, right? There's no sort of existential dread there. It's just the way technology works. But in games, it seems sort of more personal, right? And, you know, I think the simple answer is it probably just has to do with us being sort of proud of our human like brains, right? And our intelligence and thinking that we're unique in that sense. But I think whatever dread is occasioned by these programs, I mean, it eventually fades away, right? Nobody's worried about Deep Blue anymore. In fact, every human chess player uses computers extensively to train. That's becoming true in Go. That's true in poker. That's true in backgammon. That's true in basically every single game that's played seriously at a competitive level. Computers, you know, start off as dread-inducing and just become tools, right? And for the most part, superhuman games playing computers have been pretty strictly constrained to their game, right? They don't do a lot else, despite the sort of build promise that they will. I think that's starting to change a little bit. The most prominent example of that is like DeepMind, who conquered Go, 
as now, you know, folding proteins and solving mathematical conjectures and these sort of modern, quote unquote, deep learning techniques that seem a little bit more extensible than the so-called good old fashioned AI techniques that conquered chess in the 90s. So it remains to be seen, but I think we're a proud species. Yeah, it's interesting when I because I definitely remember the deep blue thing as well, and like what a big deal that was around chess, which is a very logical analytical pursuit. And I see some of that again now in the debate around Dolly, the image generating AI, and especially in the design and the art community, like people are kind of freaking out by it. There's something interesting because it almost seems like Dolly's at the other end of the spectrum. Like nobody looked at deep blue and said, "Oh wow, it's so creative." They just said it was, you know, it could calculate better. And Dolly, it seems like people are like, wow, now these things are bleeding into something that we think is uniquely human. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you did hear people call AlphaGo creative, right? AlphaGo played these moves that at first glance to human experts looked crazy. But then slowly it sort of dawned on them. This is great and beautiful, and we had never thought of this. So creative is a really interesting word in this context. And I think it's fair to say they didn't say that about the chess machines, which are sort of brute force. I mean, they were big calculators, essentially. But you did see that in Go. And, and I think that speaks to the game of Go as a sort of canvas. Dolly's interesting. I mean, I, like everybody, I mean, type funny stuff into it and see what pops out. But people really see it as sort of some kind of a threat. I think as a visual artist, you definitely see it as a threat. I mean, they'll come up with something similar to music. I mean, they have things like that for journalism, too, where they can generate articles around sports events or stock reports or something like that. But you're just piecing stuff together, and it seems like creativity. Going back to the it's AlphaGo, right? Right, yeah, Google's DeepMind. Yeah, DeepMind, uh, yeah. yeah. There are those amazing moments where it did those Go moves that shocked everybody and then made sense. And then it did the same thing with chess a couple of years later when it learned chess within about a day, I think it was. and it would make these really unusual opening moves that just nobody had ever thought of before, despite the game having been played for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, so AlphaZero was the successor to AlphaGo, so-called because it could do more than just play Go. It could play almost any game that fit this sort of structure, two players, perfect information, and so on. And it learned chess, and it sort of relearned Go, and it learned Shogi, also known as Japanese chess, and yeah, I learned each of these in whatever it was, four hours and played at a completely superhuman level. And yeah, it played extremely aggressively. Like it didn't have this sort of materialistic, sort of stodgy style that early superhuman chess computers like Deep Blue had, but it had this sort of more swashbuckling style, which seemed like it ought not work against these sort of stodgy players or machines, but it did. Like you said, there's something kind of magical in that this game has been around for 1,500 years. God knows how many instances of chess have been played. Trillions, probably. And we're still discovering not only new sort of sequences in the opening, but completely new ways of playing the game, just like completely new like aesthetic approaches to the game. And, and that's fascinating. I mean, that... It's huge credit to AlphaZero, but also, I mean, huge credit to the game of chess, right? I mean, that it can admit so many different approaches that are useful. So there's this parallel in all of the narratives about the seven games in your book about the human versus the machine. 
And it's fascinating because the way that humans learn and you kind of dig into that, you know, people have very novel approaches. You talked about the religious guy who's the checkers champ. What was his name again? Marion Tinsley. So his approach was unique. And then also the way that some of these machine learning and AI tools are learning. It's a little bit of a black box, but to some degree, like computer scientists know roughly what's happening. What did you learn about getting good at something, whether that's from a human perspective or a machine perspective, that could potentially inform us as we develop skills? Right. I mean, the thing to note, too, though, is that the human brain is a black box, right? It's not just the AI deep learning systems. I mean, the human brain itself, which is not too surprising, I guess, given that these sort of modern neural network techniques are roughly speaking modeled after the human brain with sort of many, many, many sort of neuronal connections which strengthen and weaken in response to, to stimuli and so on. I mean, I think from the human point of view, I think the sort of classic way to get good at games or to learn games is to study, you know, sort of the accumulated human knowledge, whether that's in the form of like literature books and articles, you know, employing the services of a teacher. I mean, related to that is just playing a lot. I mean, that's that's how I've learned backgammon is just playing against the computer a lot and sort of getting feedback that way, positive or often negative. From the computer's point of view, there's sort of two classes of approaches, sort of the old class and the new class. And the old one, good old-fashioned AI, that's literally what it's called, is a brute force technique where the computer sort of searches as fast as it possibly can through possible futures of a game. The metaphor that's often used here is a tree. So, you know, it branches for the next turn and then branches off of that for the turn after that until you get to little twigs and so on. And these trees are like incredibly dense and thick and take a long time to navigate, but computers would try. And every time they got to a branch, they would run some calculation and analyze the position and pick the best path up the tree. That's sort of the old school approach. And the more modern approach, yeah, this neural network, deep learning, machine learning, this is all roughly speaking the same thing, is to basically have the computer play itself many, many times. And by many times, I mean like billions of times and sort of see what works and what doesn't. And, you know, build up this sort of map in the system of how to play the game, sort of um, self-learning or reinforcement learning. Many different techniques go into this, but it's sort of a more abstract, like a little less brute force and a little more abstract. I think humans fall much more closely to the second approach, which is sort of learning by doing intuition. I mean, you see this with Go, where expert Go players thought computers would never conquer their game because it's specifically because it required human intuition. Like if you would ask a top Go player, why did you put your stone there? They would say something along the lines of like, it just felt right, you know? And they were right because they were really good players. But somehow computers have sort of cracked into this supposed idea of human intuition. That idea that humans tend to learn by studying existing human knowledge, or it's a path to learning, but it seems like the machines take more of a trial and error approach. It's interesting to me because I think that mirrors a little bit how humans maybe evolved their learning strategy over time. 
Because when we're children and we're learning how the world operates, it's all trial and error. And we do that for a long period of time. But then as we age and get you know into our 40s, 50s, 60s, we tend to focus on our accumulated knowledge and the accumulated knowledge of others. And as a result, if you look at it just anecdotally, we tend to become less creative. So there's something interesting about the machines, again, with AlphaGo and AlphaZero, that they seemed uniquely creative in how they approached Go and chess because they were willing to experiment. I wonder if there's some lesson for us as humans in there as well. I think poker is a good example of this. Humans you know, have played poker for whatever, roughly speaking, 100 years. Countless books have been written about it, and this sort of style of play came to dominate, even among professional players. And, you know, they were sort of at the top of sort of a specific hill of skill of the game. And, you know, they try to move in any direction around the top of this hill. They weren't getting any higher. And so they thought, great, we're doing this really well. But what they sort of didn't realize was over there across that valley is an even taller hill that we don't even know about. This is, I think, a a recurring theme, sort of you're at your sort of local maxima and you don't dare to sort of climb down your hill in search of a taller one. This is obviously a bit abstract, but I think this is sort of what computers can do these days, as powerful as they are. And in poker, like roughly speaking, they discovered kind of a whole new style of playing. Again, much more aggressive, sort of with sort of more abandon. It's known as game theory optimal or, or GTO play. And sort of this thing that humans weren't really capable of doing or, or certainly didn't think much about doing, say, even 10, 20 years ago. What do you think games teach us about decision-making? I think that games allow us to make a lot of decisions without consequences, essentially. Right. So in this sense, we can sort of test out ideas in a relatively safe like sandbox. In real life, the most important decisions are the ones you make least frequently. Like, who am I going to like marry? Like, which house am I going to buy? Like, what jobs? Am I, like, how, how much practice do you get with these decisions? Very little, if not zero. But in games, you get to make decisions over and over and over again, very, very quickly. The feedback loop is very tight. And I think that's like a nice feature of games. And, you know, it's not as though learning to play chess well is going to help you like choose a good house or a good job. But I do think that just making decisions per se and making good ones can be useful. I mean, I, I brought this up before, but this idea of in Scrabble, Scrabble is about spending and saving. Like, do I use this S now for 10 points or next turn for maybe 50 points? That idea. I genuinely think that I learned lessons about being kind to my future self by becoming a good Scrabble player. I genuinely think that. And I'm sure that there's examples abound. I mean, there's lots of research on the importance of chess in the schools. There's a reason that's funded and very popular, especially here in New York. And there's research on the benefits to children of playing chess and other games. There's also that permission to fail, I think, with a game more so than with life. So it's kind of like an easier way to try things out and take bold moves. Yeah, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah, you you lose, right? And you start a new game. 
Oliver, we like to close the show with a question that's a little bit of reverse mentoring, if you will. So we like to ask you to try to imagine yourself, I suspect back when you were a competitive Scrabble player and you were maybe in your early 20s. And I want you to think about that Oliver and what that Oliver knew. And if you were to sit down today and have coffee with that Oliver, what advice would he have for you as you're living your life today? I think this idea that like, whenever like there's challenges in my life, this is so corny, but I'm going to keep going. Like whenever things are going, but someone always tells you like, Oh, it's, it's going to be okay. And you're sort of like, no, it's not like, but it always is, you know, it's, it's always okay. Like trusting that idea, I think would have saved me so much trouble in my adult life. Younger me, maybe he was a little more sort of carefree. One last question. Where can people learn more about you and your work? I am on Twitter at Ollie, O-L-L-I-E. The book is called Seven Games, A Human History, available from W.W. Norton, wherever fine books are sold. And I am senior writer at Financial Times, ft.com. All right. Thank you, Oliver. That was fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I know that was a little bit more nerdy than what we typically do on the show, but I, for one, find it really fascinating. And I thought there were some great takeaways. Aaron, why don't we start with you? Like, what sort of stood out for you in some of that? I was fascinated just with the, you know, like if you kind of strip it back from the gameplay and the the human versus machine stuff, just like, how do we learn? How do we make decisions? And how does play empower us to navigate life in a different way? And I was thinking about, you know, that line of questioning we had around video games and the bias and judgment we have about, hey, you know, you came home and you're playing video games and you're just wasting your time. I have all those judgments about people who play other games, like poker in particular for, you know, long periods of time. Why poker? I don't know. Not justifying my judgments, but I have them. And it occurred to me that, so games are great at helping us try things out with lower stakes and learn to make better decisions, but they're not real decisions, they're abstracted decisions. And when the game becomes the entire world, becomes the environment, and we don't take those lessons and go put those into the real world to make real accomplishments, it's not like I achieved this rank on a video game or my chess rating is you know above 2000. You know, what is that accomplishment really? It's an abstraction. The opportunity is to take those lessons and go put those into the real world for actual accomplishment. The one thing that I wrote down was the most important decision you make are the ones that you make least frequently. And just kind of chiming onto what Aaron said, I never really thought about it that way, but it's true. And you put so much pressure and stakes on those big decisions that you make. So being in an environment or being able to do something where you can practice and try that out is something that I think I would be more open to doing. So things seem less scary. Yeah, there was stuff in there that I thought was interesting that was sort of like opposite ends of the spectrum. Like at the beginning of the interview, we were asking Oliver about like why we connect to these games. And he had that really beautiful moment of talking about how he played chess with his grandfather and how long it took him to beat his grandfather and why that was special. That idea of playing 
as a child, being able to play the same game and being on kind of level playing field with your elders, if you will, your parents, grandparents, other adults that you come into. I thought that's a, a really amazing thing. In addition to that human connection through time, and that when you play backgammon, you're playing a game virtually unchanged since ancient Egypt. You know, when I play chess, I feel that connection that like millions and millions of people have been playing this game virtually unchanged for hundreds and hundreds of years. And here I am doing it again. And you know, still finding new moves and new ways to think about it is just an amazing connection across time. Amazing connection across time, but also like amazing connection kind of through humanity in a way. And he also said something that he learned how to be kind by playing Scrabble and being a Scrabble player. And I just, I thought that was so interesting because it does teach like sportsmanship and how to interact with other people. And that, again, this is not just a game for play, but it's kind of like a game to help guide your life a little bit. It's an environment for trial and error where you can test out different ideas. You can you can try on different personalities. Like when I play chess, sometimes when I enter a game, I'm like, oh, I'm going to play super aggressive in this game. And other games, I'm like, oh, I'm going to back off. And I get to I get to test out different aspects of my personality, different ways of expressing myself in the game and see what happens and see how I feel. And one of the things I've learned over the years of playing chess is that when I play more aggressive and play with more confidence, I actually feel much better about myself. And too often in games, I get defensive really early on and end up being really conservative. And it's a side of me that I don't really like. It's an interesting environment to kind of test out and flex different aspects of my personality. You know, we talked about the transgenerational connection that games afford us. I liked how it strips down our roles, our societal roles. For example, like, you know, it's not uncommon for my two boys and my wife and I, we play like Mario Kart. Or I'll play chess, you know, intentionally Santa brought a chess board for the kids that sits out in the living room and the middle of a space that we walk through because it's a trap, you know, it's like, if it's there, we'll sit down and play. And when we play those games, I'm not the person in charge. I'm not like dad who like is creating the rules for the environment. We're all operating and subject to the same set of rules. I am prey as much as predator, you know, like uh, <laughs> they, they beat me, they humble me, they have a good time, like flipping those roles. I get a lot out of that. You know, I get a lot out of the role shifting. And also they see my humanity instead of seeing me as dad, they see me as, you know, another person. And I think that's pretty unique. One of the most interesting things I thought he was talking about was kind of towards the end where we got into this notion of how humans learn largely by studying past human behavior and aggregated human knowledge. Whereas part of what AlphaGo and AlphaZero is able to do is just able to run you know, millions or billions or trillions of experiments. They're just able to do trial and error you know, on steroids and test out all these other ideas. That leads you into some really interesting, unexpected, innovative solutions to a problem that seems like we've beat it from every corner there possibly is. And I think there's an interesting lesson, uh, certainly for me as a creative, you know, that I tend to think, oh, I have to go learn how other people have done it. I need to sort of mimic what they've done. I need to stay on the path that's already well-worn. It's like, no, no, no. You just need to try a lot of different stuff. Like create the options, let your mind run free, put everything out there, and then you can back up and judge and evaluate which one's the best. But you've got to give yourself some runway to just create. You know, that's been reported in lots of different fields having to do with music composition and lots of other things. But it's such a hard lesson 
to just engage in play, like true trial and error play, and let that get you someplace interesting and novel and unexpected. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kima Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.